Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. I think it's hard to talk about identity. And I think that the music I make on my own is engaging with that in a way that I hope is inclusive, that, you know, that anybody can come to and anyone can connect. You know, I don't need every person who listens to this album to be the son or the daughter of immigrants. I don't need everyone who listens to this album to not identify as straight. But I want to connect with all of those people. And I think it's hard to try to connect with every different kind of person. People that you might disagree with, people that you might not have shared experiences with. But yeah, why is it hard to connect in those ways? It's hard to know. That was Rostam Bonmonglidge. I'm Sam Fragoso. This is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. The year is 2006. On the heels of graduating from Columbia University, Rostam Batmanglij decided to create a band. A 22, 23-year-old guy wanting to start a group with his friends is not an uncommon desire. It seems everyone has a band in their early 20s. But what Rostam co-created was not your standard makeshift musical collective. It was a coming together of skilled artists interested in a kind of sonic chemistry. 
an amalgamation of catchy pop, neoclassical, African, and alt-rock. It was unusual and daring. It was fresh and exciting. It was, well, Vampire Weekend. Rostam had many roles in the group. Songwriter, producer, vocalist, keys, guitar, percussion. During his time, the band ascended to heights I'm not sure any of them imagined. The music of Vampire Weekend was so popular in specific circles that it kind of became an ongoing joke. Walking to a party in New York City from around 2008 to 2013, and you'll probably hear a song about a diplomat's son or horchata. The group continued to make music, and more time passed. A decade, in fact. Then, somewhat suddenly to the public, Rostam left the group in January of 2016. The reason for this decision was clear. Rostam had aspirations to make and put out his own music. Solo projects. That has now come in the form of his debut solo record, called Half Light. It's a staggering piece of music, vulnerable and honest. The work of someone who has clearly spent years of his life meticulously poring over its details. In fact, there is so much to be said about this record, which comes out next month on September 15th. But for now, I give you Rostam but Manglage. There's a lot of places to start, and I was driving over here listening to the new record. And I kept trying to figure out, okay, do I want to start where you're born in, in D.C. and talk about family stuff or all the Vampire Weekend stuff or, or just the new record? And the thing to me that stood out in going through the lyrics today and the credits is that most of this new record of yours is recorded in the Echo Park backhouse. <laughs> Which is at your house? Is that is the studio inside your home? Yes, it's separate from the home, but like a guest house, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. When you're walking in there to like start this project, I mean, I know some of these songs had already come out prior to you know maybe the creation of this album, but I'm interested in what are you feeling in that moment going into that house of yours? I mean, it's right next to your home. It's interesting because these songs started in different ways across spanning a lot of years. And I'm somewhat reluctant to talk about how early the origins of some of these songs were. But that studio is is kind of where they were oftentimes finished Mm. and pushed across the finish line. So they weren't created there? Ah, there were songs that, well, it's complicated. <laughs> Probably most of most of this record had some, most of the songs on this record had some origin that was connected to New York. I think as I've been doing a few interviews about the record, I've realized that there's about three different ways that songs came about. There was the sort of traditional iPhone voice memo where it's me sitting at a piano and singing and just oftentimes like gibberish lyrics and just trying to capture an idea that I had that I thought had some kernel of interest to me. So that's one way that songs came about. 
like the song Half Light started as a voice memo. It was just piano and vocals. And then there's a whole group of songs that started as beats that I would build up on my computer. And when I say beat, I really am starting to talk about like a whole instrumental track mm-hmm. that, you know, sounds close to finished before lyrics are put on it. Yeah, exactly. So those were two ways. And then the third way, I guess, had to do with like writing string parts. And one of the things I was really trying to do with this record was try to blur the line between what was a string arrangement, what was a song. And the way that I got there was by starting with strings. So there's a couple songs that really started that way. Mm. The New York move is significant here, though. I mean, the fact that a lot of the songs, that's where their origin is, that's significant. But I was thinking you moved from New York to Los Angeles, right, in the the process of making this record? Yes. Yeah, and I came out to Los Angeles to work on this record Mm. um, before I had moved, when I had just sort of a collection of ideas. And through a mutual friend, I met someone who's now one of my closest friends. His name's Ariel Rekscheid. And uh, our friend Mickey put us together and said, you guys are both producers. You'd like each other. You should meet. And we met and we got to know each other. And then shortly thereafter, maybe like a year after, I came to L.A. and and we had a few days kind of just working together in the studio and the intention of maybe recording some of these ideas that I had. Did that seem scary to you? Yes. I think it, well, I think I was maybe a little apprehensive about committing to finishing these songs, but that's what I really wanted to do. And so that was in the spring of 2011. And uh, from there, I went back to New York and I just kind of continued to work more and more. On your own stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and in 2011, I actually put out two of the songs that ended up on this record. One's called Wood and one's called Don't Let It Get To You. Mm-hmm. And uh, after that, I, I kind of got sucked into finishing the next Vampire Weekend record. And in that process, I reached out to Ariel and we started working with him on that record too. Right. So That's the only one that you had someone else help produce. So Ariel and I produced every song on that album together. Mm. That was Yeah, that was the first time that I worked with another producer. Mm. The first two Vampire Weekend records I produced on my own. So Ariel, oftentimes he'll work at the beginning and the or at the end of a record or throughout a record-making process. But with what he contributed on this record, it was more in, sort of in the middle because I had these ideas and then... You needed someone to push you forward. Yes, and... I think he he gave me that kind of as just, I think, first and foremost as a friend and as just someone that believed in me and believed in my voice, which was something that was maybe a little bit distinct Mm -hmm. from what I think people had heard in other music that I'd made. You mean Vampire Weekend and Discovery? Sure. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting because you speak of these things in in rather vague terms. (laughs) When we all know exactly what you're talking about. There you go. I should, yeah, I should be, I should feel more confident about talking about some of this stuff, but I think it's hard for me sometimes. Why is that? 
don't know. That's a question I guess I need to be able to answer more easily. But This is my opinion. I've known yeah. you for 5, 10, 20 minutes. Yeah. You don't need to answer that for me, but I think it may help you, like just in your own life. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Because like the, a podcast or an interview is an interview or a podcast, it doesn't matter. But Sure. What I'm sensing, if I'm wrong, you tell me I'm wrong, but in 2011, it seemed like you felt some guilt about working on stuff that was independent of the group that was doing really well at the time. Yeah, I think I'm. maybe I just, I think right now in my life, I feel like I have this balance between working as a producer, working with other artists, working on their projects, and then also having my own project that I can give 100% of myself to. And I, I do feel really fulfilled now in having both those things in my life and I feel like I found the right balance. At what point in your collaboration uh, with Vampire Weekend did you not feel fulfilled anymore? I never felt that actually. I never felt not fulfilled because I think it always satisfied the side of me as a producer that wanted to chase down certain dreams that I had for what songs could sound like. I think the reason I wanted to make this record is because I had some stories that I wanted to tell, Mm -hmm. some narratives. And while Ezra and I did collaborate on the first two albums on a handful of songs in terms of the lyrical narratives, it became on the third record a sort of a division of labor where the narratives truly were Ezra's and the... Producing was yours. Yes. that I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to break things down so much in terms of division of labor. and it But it's how of, you felt at the time. Well, no, I didn't really feel that. It's hard to say that that was what I felt, but I guess what I wanted to do with this record was tell stories. That were yours. Yeah, I think that's right. Mm. Yeah. I mean, in looking at just the lyrical content of, of the new record versus some of the Vampire Weekend stuff, you're smiling while I'm saying this sentence. Well, I'm curious what you're going to say. I... Well, I think the, the the biggest disconnect, or rather the thing that I could imagine being, not about frustrating, but not entirely satisfying, is that, you know, a lot of the Vampire Weekend stuff is very heteronormative. It's very, like, <laughs> straight guy. I, I don't necessarily agree. There are outliers, but yeah. those are your outliers that you wrote. Yeah. If we're talking about um, yeah, Diplomat's is... Son or something yeah, like that. Yeah, that's right. Yes, and it's interesting having this conversation with you. It sounds like you really know those songs because there's so many different responses depending on how well people know those records. Some people really know those records well and they can talk about every song on it and other people... Not me. Okay. I know them, but I know them actually to me, and I'm just being honest with you, they were something that uh, friends of mine liked a lot in college and I listened to almost tangentially and I had like four songs saved. Okay. And so when I got your new record, I was like, I don't know, because that wasn't my bag. I'm just being candid. And then I was lured by it. Wow. Because I actually think it's, and this this is my point, is that it's wildly different than what people were were listening to in Vampire Weekend. It's really not the same. And I think it's because you're finally leaning into yourself a little bit. Well, I'm leaning into it insofar as I'm presenting it. I 
I was, <laughs> I was I was I was working on these songs over time, and I wanted them to amount to something before I released them into the world. Amount to something to you? I guess I mean a narrative. I mean some kind of a connective tissue among these songs. Hmm. <laughs> so, do you think my assessment is wrong about the difference between the lyrical content of Vampire Weekend versus? Some of the stuff you're tackling here? I think that, hmm, I, I don't know. And I, I think that Ezra as a lyricist was able to talk about some very complex things. And I don't think people fully ever unpacked them, especially on the last record. And the fact that he and I were sitting in a room together three to five days a week for a couple of years to make that record gives me a very specific window into those albums and into I think what he was able to put across lyrically, and I think that those depths have yet to really be uncovered. Mm. What do you think people didn't get? I, it's not for me to say. I I don't want to. I don't want to say that. I think he put out exactly what he wanted to put out into the world, and he wanted to leave some puzzles. Yeah, just I guess just some puzzles. I don't want to say some puzzles solvable or unsolvable, but just some puzzles. And I think with this record, there's some things that I wanted to leave as puzzles. And I think some people will try to put the pieces together and I'd love for that to happen. And some people may come close to it. Some people may not. Some people may never put the pieces together. But I think to me, that's kind of like what, that's maybe what I mean by a narrative, Mm. an album that creates this situation where there's a world to get lost inside of. Is that what you're looking for in music? I think it might be. I think it's something that I'm looking for from an album. To get lost? Yeah. And it's easier to get lost in music than do life, is what I find. <laughs> what do you mean do life? I'd rather just listen to music and drive than step out of the car and interact. I find that to be true often, especially in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is definitely a city of driving and listening to music. It is. It certainly is for me. It's one of the reasons I love living in Los Angeles is because I love driving. And I love, specifically, I love driving and listening to music at the same time. Yeah, it's kind of the best part of this. People complain there's too much driving, but I think those people don't <laughs> like music very much. That might be the case. That may be the case. They need to discover books on tape. That I can't do. That's a bridge <laughs> too far. Books on tape is like a... Bob Mongolidge family tradition, I feel like. My mom, she does a lot of work in the kitchen, and she likes to listen to books on tape in the kitchen as she's working. And my dad, he likes to take walks, so he likes to listen to books on tapes as he's walking. And when they do drives together, they like to listen to books on tape. So mm. everyone in our family has a kind of tradition of listening to books on tape. So you're more audio person than anything else? Maybe. It's possible. Because you started producing at a pretty young age, right? I mean, like, this is... Yeah, I mean... 12 or 13? It's interesting because I think that, yeah, when I was 14, I started... I got some multi-track recording devices, and I was using those to just layer sounds, you know? Like to play a guitar part and then to play a different guitar part on top of it. Mm. And eventually I got a drum set in my room. And then when I was like 15 or 16, I started to use this program called Reason, which was a way of making electronic music and using drum sounds that were samples. So individual hits like snare drums and kick drums and hi-hats. And I started to 
put together drum patterns. And at the same time, I was I had a drum set in my room. So I would kind of figure out how those things intersected. Mm. Was there a crystallizing moment where it made sense to you? Of like, oh, this, these pieces are coming together and in a way that I figured out and created. Well, when I was 18, this device called an M-Box came out, which was kind of like the first one of these. The listeners can't see, but I'm pointing at this interface, which allows you to plug microphones into a computer and plug headphones into that. A Focusrite. Yeah, so Focusrite is something we have now. We have many of them, but in the early days, the M-Box was really the first one, which let you use Pro Tools and let you go anywhere you wanted. Record Pro Tools in your room, record it in a barn, record it you know, in the kitchen. That's pretty great, yeah. especially for a young teenager. Yeah, it, it was great. And uh, as a really young kid, I was really into painting. Maybe there's some analog there of painting involving like layers of color or shapes that interlock. And music is also, you know, some people have described multi-track recording specifically as painting with sound. Mm. Do you remember the first record that you listened to where the light bulb came on? Like the one where, I, for me, I think it was uh, like Songs in the Key of Life. My dad played that. And I was like, what? what? What is happening right now? I didn't have the vocabulary or really the understanding to describe the sensation, but I remember being completely floored by it. I think I felt that way about this U2 album called Octung Baby that came out in 1991. Never heard of this. <laughs> Please. You, you probably heard, it had a lot of big hits. It had Mysterious Ways. It had One. Do you know those songs? I don't know. If I heard them, maybe. I'm sure you know them. One was just a huge song. But for a lot of people who were U2 fans, I think Octung Baby was this big left turn. And for me, I was nine years old when it came out, eight, eight years old. So it was like the first album that I got into. And it was just, it just sounded crazy to me in a way that I was drawn to. I mean, I didn't know that it sounded crazy, but I was drawn to it. Were your parents showing you stuff as well? Or was your brother showing you music? Yeah, I remember I got into Octung Baby because my brother had this boom box. And I think his friend Rory gave him the CD Octung Baby, and he used to play it on the boom box. So I wanted to be able to listen to Octung Baby. So my parents bought me the cassette, and I had a cassette Walkman that I could listen to Octung Baby on. Walkmans were great. <laughs> that was freeing. I remember walking around and thinking, oh my God, I can leave my house and walk to school and play music, and no one knows what I'm listening to. It's like, it felt like another world. The same thing with driving in LA or something. Yeah. For sure. It's weird when, when you meet someone who says, uh, like, I don't listen to music. Have you had this? Well, I've had periods of my life where I don't want to listen to music, where I need a break. Because you're worn out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's definitely moments where I'll be with a friend, you know, hanging out at night, and they'll put on some music or something. And I'll just ask them, like, please, can we not listen to any music? And they'll kind of look at me like, what's wrong with you? But then, you know, if you spend eight hours, 10 hours in a studio, and that's what you do from nine in the morning till six at night, you do kind of need a break. Mm. So I guess in that way, I can understand not wanting to listen to music. But that's someone who's like inundated with music. The people I'm talking about no, don't I listen understand. to music often. But maybe there's other things in their head that 
I don't know. Prevent them from listening. Maybe. Do you, are you, I mean, you seem to be someone, based on what I've read, but I could be wrong, who obsesses over tracks till they're perfect. <laughs> there's a bit of that. It's a good quality. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Yeah, there's a bit of that. It's definitely part of who I am. <laughs> <laughs> Your voice got quieter when you I, said that. I don't know. I, I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's like a kind of a compulsive, obsessive, it's hard for me to let go because I do like the process and I can see so many ways that you can make a recording more powerful or more direct or more spacious. And and it's hard for me to say, okay, you've done your work and now it's time to let it into the world. Mm. Are you bothered by that tendency? In myself? Yes, I, I do wish that I could let go a little bit more easily. But maybe that's not in you. It's probably not. Although maybe I'll change. I don't know. I'm only thirty. I'm only thirty-three. So you're young. Maybe, as record producers go, maybe. The producing thing seems to be something in recent years that's been going pretty well. Are you are you less obsessive when it comes to other people's stuff? No. 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 I'm very, I'm equally obsessive. All right. So when you're working on Ivy. <laughs> That was an interesting situation where Frank had written the song, he'd recorded the vocals, and he played it for me, and I had a vision of what the music underneath his vocal could sound like. Was it just vocals when he sent it to you? No, there was a beat that Malay had made. And actually, there's a live performance from 2012 or 2013 where you can hear Ivy over the original beat. So when I heard that, I had a vision for what the production could be for what the musical world could be around his vocal. And that was at his studio that he played it for me. And then a few months later, he brought the session to my studio and I muted all the elements in the session except for the vocal. I soloed the vocal so I could hear the vocal and I plugged in a guitar and I just started playing chords on the electric guitar and recording them and figuring out like you know, what are the chords that could resonate emotionally? Mm. And, you know, I had some things in my mind. I was thinking about, like, some Smokey Robinson songs. I was thinking about Lauryn Hill. I was thinking about this one-stroke song called Under Control. Mm. I don't know if you know that. I know that one. So those were kind of floating around in my head. And I was just kind of experimenting. And those those chords that I played in that first take, those are the chords that you hear now in the song. They're the same chord changes. And that was all improvised. It was all improvised. And then um, someone else replayed them. But the sort of the sound that I was going for was this kind of 60s sound of spring spring reverb and tape warble mm-hmm. so that, you know, the, the pitch would fluctuate. And it would, I, I don't know, I think there's a lot of things in modern recording that lead you to have very perfect recreations of sound and i think they take a lot of the personality out of recordings and that song has a very lo-fi quality to it that i think especially works and it also doesn't get in the way that i was listening to it also driving over i've noticed that it's a tendency with a lot of modern music to me is that it's overproduced it's like i don't even know what the person is trying to sing or say Mm. because the instrumentation is getting in the way of 
it's not accentuating it's like it's blocking and that song it really comes out organically yeah i think i have to you know hats off to frank because on that record i think he really isolated what exactly he wanted to convey Mm. and i think he stripped away everything that wasn't necessary in a really beautiful way and i think maybe that's why my favorite on that record is white ferrari because there's so little information harmonically and yet so much is conveyed Mm. how did that collaboration even come about working with frank yeah well it's interesting um so I mentioned in 2011 that I came to California to work on my own music with Ariel. But the first day that I had booked there, I had a session booked with Frank. And I asked Ariel if I could use his studio to record with Frank. And it didn't work out. Unfortunately, that session never came together. Mm. But we stayed in touch. And when he came to New York on the Channel Orange tour... Uh, He came over to my apartment, we hung out, we talked about music and talked about life, and we stayed in touch. And then that's how it eventually unfolded. Yeah. Someone was asking me uh, two days ago, no, but today's Saturday, Oh, a week ago, during the FYF show, there was someone asking me, a 36-year-old guy, he was saying, I'm surprised that... Frank Ocean was performing. I'm surprised that this is what people like, rather that young people like this, or that it's popular. He was very confused by this. And I've, I've been trying to, over the last week, explain why I think Frank does that or why he affects people the way they do. But I guess I want to ask you, what do you make of it? I think that Frank is a storyteller and I think that he works incredibly hard on crafting the lyrics and the music that he makes and I think you know I think he's just just technically he is certainly one of the best singers in the world no question (laughs) that seems fair (laughs) and I've been in the studio with I've been lucky enough to be in the studio with I think some of the best singers in the world, and and I would say he's certainly one of them. Mm. And he's vulnerable, or at least the music is. And I think people are responding to that right now. That's interesting. Yeah. You think I'm wrong? No, I think you're right. I think. Well, I think, I think it's interesting. You say vulnerable. I might say honest. They're connected, right? Because yeah, vulnerability is a kind of honesty, right? being honest about fear or you're letting honesty conquer fear and do you think you do that do i i strive to i strive to be honest i strive to talk about things that are difficult to talk about i think that's i think that's a goal of mine that was what's difficult to talk about for you (laughs) i think I wish people could see the expression you made when I asked that question. Yeah, because it's a good question. It is a good question. I want to give it a good answer. That's why I'm I'm trying to think of a really good answer to that. Um, I think having. What do you feel? I mean, don't don't give me this thinking. I don't want to think. I want I want. what, What do you feel? I think it's hard to talk about identity. 
And I think that the music I make on my own is engaging with that in a way that I hope is inclusive, that, you know, that anybody can come to and anyone can connect. You know, I don't need every person who listens to this album to be the son or the daughter of immigrants. I don't need everyone who listens to this album to not identify as straight, but I want to connect with all of those people. And I think it's hard to try to connect with every different kind of person, people that you might disagree with, people that you might not have shared experiences with. But yeah, why is it hard to connect in those ways? It's hard to know. And why do you think you want to connect with everyone? I think that anyone who makes a piece of music or a piece of art or a film or a television show, that they want to be out in the world, they're striving to connect. Otherwise, you know, there's music that I make that I don't want people to hear. Well, why don't I want people to hear it? (laughs) I'm not interested in connecting with people with some of the music that I make. I'm not interested in sharing it. That's okay. Mm. So there's a division between yours and everyone else's. It's interesting because on your social media post, um, when you left Vampire Weekend, you wrote a thing on the notes tab of your iPhone. That's right. And um, the end of that is something like, there's a lot more new music to come, and I feel lucky to share it with you. Yeah, that's right. I do feel lucky to share music. So that's part of the, that's the connection part. Like, if you don't share the music, then you can't connect. Then you also are out of a job. You don't like that part. <laughs> what do you mean I don't like? Well, now, yeah, I, I really hate to think of what I do as a job. <laughs> Even though I have friends that joke about how I work more hours than doctors sometimes. But I don't like to think of it as a job. It starts to feel like kind of yucky. Mm. I'd rather just, i just rather keep my head down and keep making music and keep working with people that I'm inspired by and keep chasing down these ideas that I get for songs, you know? I think that's fair. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know why. I really don't like the idea of it being my job. Okay. I wouldn't mind having like a job teaching composition at like a small liberal arts college. That could be a job. You're not going to do that. I might. You won't. I might do that. I might do that. Okay. We'll we'll, we'll check back. (laughs) I, I don't think so. The, the need to connect with everyone, I guess I'm trying to unpack that or try to understand where that's coming from for you because I don't know. Not every, you, you say everyone who creates a film, a TV show, art of any kind, wants to be out there in the world. Arguably, all people want to be out there in the world. They want to be seen. I mean, that's the goal is to, to, to be seen, to feel heard, to feel wanted. And so I guess... I don't know if that's... I don't know if I You don't agree. think people want to feel wanted? In different ways. I think they get it from different Sure. That's why not sources. everyone creates art. Yeah. but Everyone creates some kind of art, I think. Well, sure. That's a more of a philosophical conversation, though. Okay. Which we can have. Sure. <laughs> if you like it, then you're sure. If, you know. No, I, I see what you're saying. There's poetry and people are working at a grocery store. I believe that. But, you know, like, I don't... It's interesting. Like, I don't draw the way that I used to. I used to spend four or five, six hours a day sitting in front of a sketch pad and drawing. And 
as I became a teenager, I had kind of transitioned away from visual art, and I think I got what I was looking for out of music. But every now and then I'll just draw a little sketch on like a napkin at a restaurant or something like that. So in that way, I kind of feel like, I don't know, I I feel like it's still, I'm still making art when I do that. Mm. And just in the same way that I think that what I do when I make an album, when I design an album cover or when I play a show, what I'm doing isn't disconnected from making art. I'm still kind of making art. It's not a painting in a gallery, but thank God it's not a painting in the gallery. Because <laughs> then you're making art for a bunch of 70-year-old rich people. It's interesting. You're pushing back against people who like art galleries. <laughs> I'm not pushing back against it. I just I think I had a realization that if I was going to make paintings, I would be making artwork that only a very like small sliver of the world could really engage with. The very few who could afford to buy and maybe a little bit more who can go see it. But exactly. Still not all that much. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons I was very interested in car design. Mm. For a long time, I wanted to be a car designer because I feel like car design is kind of like sculpture that everybody can mm. engage it's with. It's egalitarian. Yeah. It's connecting with everybody, which again is you've found out that that is kind of a mission statement of mine. I found that out. I mean, you just said it. <laughs> it wasn't like I was a detective. Well, you I think you took me there though because you're kind of you kept you were asking some leading questions. Why do you want to connect with everyone? I still don't I don't still don't have an answer. We'll get back to that. All right, we'll get back to it. I think it's interesting that you're pushing back against someone who wants to be a painter, which is for very fair reasons, I agree. You're making art for predominantly older white affluent people which is funny because i have a lot of friends that are painters and i and i buy some of their work i'm sure you can afford to do so now. i only yeah, i only buy my friends work that's that's good you're a supportive friend there you go i think you may know where i'm going with this though in that i don't know where you're the going. long well great good <laughs> take me there oh thank you the rap on vampire weekend for the longest time has always been a group drenched in privilege and the people who listen to them there, there was a certain look. It was a, I don't know, like a pitchfork aesthetic, something like that. And that was generally what was written about the group. But I'm not saying that's accurate or inaccurate. I don't know it well enough to make that assessment. But that was what people said. Is that fair? I think on a very surface level, some people did interpret certain things that we were doing, which we were doing sort of purposefully and with a lot of knowledge of trying to turn a thing on its head. Mm. And I think there were people who missed that completely and they did interpret things the way that you're hearing them or the, the, the way that you're saying. And they missed your intellectual intent. There, Yeah, there was an intellectual intent that was missing from some of that initial reception. And I think over the course of the three albums, we kind of like, we sort of set it straight mm. as to what we were interested in doing. Well, it did seem like the second record was in response or amending. I don't know, it seemed more malleable, I guess, in, mm. in, in response to the reaction people had had, which was, by the way, remarkable. We're, 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 we're talking about a very specific kind of criticism that very few people read or even gave a shit about. But on the whole, when people think of Vampire Weekend, they think positive things. 
but there was a very certain kind of person that got attached to listening to your group, which is not exactly your fault, but it is what I, it is. I don't agree with you. Okay. I think... <laughs> Fight back. <laughs> I was at... Because if you came to those shows, I think you would see there was all different kinds of people. There were so many different kinds of people in it that connected with our music. And I think most of them got it. Most of them got what we were trying to do, what we were, how we were trying to sort of show something greater in these connections between colonialism and what people think of as quote-unquote preppy. Mm. Um, I think people kind of started to understand our mission over time. It took time to get there. But that was the mission? That was one of the missions, yeah. Are you angry with me? No, I'm not. I'm not I just dis- I just disagree, I guess. I'm not at all angry. Yeah, it's okay if you're No, I'm yeah. not. I, I, I actually have no agenda? I don't really. What, what what would my agenda be in this case? Well yeah, I didn't really let you go to where you were going. Where were where were you going now? No, it think, was- it's funny, I think you're doing I actually think to me, musically, and this is what I was saying earlier. And lyrically, the new record and the things you're saying now feel more of a course correction than anything else. And you can disagree with that, and that's fine. That's just my impression based on listening to the record and the lyrical content. Just actual playing songs side by side if we were looking at the lyrics. I think it's you pivoting to you. Well, certainly, like what I was saying about being a storyteller in the world of this record, Half Light, where I think there were things that I wanted to say. Not all of them are first-person narratives, mm. but maybe, yeah, maybe they are. Rudy? <laughs> Rudy is a story song. Mm. It's the clearest story song. In fact, I thought about calling the song, This is the Story of a Boy Named Rudy, which is one of the last lyrics yeah, no. in the song. <laughs> why do you yeah you why are you shaking your head you don't think that would have been a good title i think it's a, it a bad title yeah <laughs> all right so i made the right choice i think rudy's good it's also the i think the best song on the record cool but that's just my no takeaway from it and also maybe because there's like horn section and i'm i'm excited about that okay so i i will tell you at the end of last year 2016 I played most of this record in some form for my parents and my brother. And as I played it for them, I had a thought, which was, I think I need to bring back Rudy, which Rudy was not going to be on the record. And so I went about finishing the record, and I had a mastered version of the album in April and I realized Rudy had to come back. And so I spent about a week finishing the song and I put it on the album. And that's when I kind of knew the album was done when I had finished Rudy and Rudy was back in the track list. Why were you taking that off? <sighs> well, you know, th- that song started in 2009. So it was. Because you met a boy named Rudy. <laughs> no. <laughs> that's not exactly the story. Well, although I, sh- I shouldn't say no. I think that maybe maybe that was the reason. Maybe I don't remember. It was a long time ago. <laughs> You're good at being coy. It's an interesting tactic. <laughs> <here>. 
<laughs> yes, maybe not the right tactic for a podcast. Um, Use whatever tactic you're most comfortable with. Yeah, being coy is an important tool, I yeah. think. Well, you know what it does? It allows you to constantly have someone come up to you and then you just sort of push <laughs> them away. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to do that with it with everybody certainly not someone who's taking the time to talk to me for an hour in a podcast i, I want to make sure i don't push anyone away um but isn't that your default i hope not i'm i think i thought i was trying to connect with everyone musically that's why you had the music hmm what do you mean look i can only speak for myself yeah sure and and maybe some people i know but i don't know a lot of my friends who make films or, or act make music or even in when I'm writing my stuff it feels like that's the thing that I want people to really know it's me perfecting the interaction it's me perfecting being with another human being because in reality it's far more idiosyncratic and messy and frustrating so you pivot to art because you're you know the sole controller of it yeah, that is that is an interesting thing about art is that you get to control an environment or you get to control a canvas, a white canvas. You get to control what's on it. It's the same reason why I often like having people at my house instead of going to someone else's home because like, I want to play the music. I, I want to <laughs> like have control of the setting because I don't, it's, I, in my head, and I'm crazy, I just think it's better in my hands. I think it's going to go better, at least for me, if I'm controlling it. Sure. Interesting. Although, yeah, sometimes it's nice to let let go. Sure, I do that too. I'm not like entirely obsessive. But I have noticed throughout the course of this interview, and even before we started, reluctant. Well, yeah, because there's a part of me that really wants to talk about the song Rudy and say everything that's on my mind. And there's another part of me that says... Let the puzzle pieces lie as they are on the table. Let people put the puzzle together. Don't give them too much. I think you have to keep in mind that there's a certain amount of people who listen to this show <laughs> and will listen to the thing that you're on. It's yeah. a small swath. Yeah. If you want to talk about it, I'd love to hear about it. If you don't want to talk about it, we can move on. Yeah, I'd love to answer any questions that you had about the song. Well, if you did have questions. Well, I think it's more interesting if you walk us through the experience of how it came to be. Because clearly there was someone or something that triggered it. Maybe it wasn't Rudy. I think I was drawn to this word Rudy, that it's in Jamaican culture. It's spread from Jamaica to England, to London. And, you know, it's also a word just phonetically, that exists in Persian. Mm. And it's a name. It's a Persian name as well, Rudy. And it's a place in Iran. So there were all these connections that were, I think, working in the back of my head. I knew that I wanted to tell this story about somebody who cannot be themselves in the place that they are, and they have to leave. And I saw that as something that it's a reality. It's a hard reality that we have to face. I think that's what kind of drew me to that story. It's something, you know, maybe it's like a high school that you went to that 
you got treated like shit. You got, you got bullied so much that you had to leave. That didn't happen to me, but I know people who it did happen to. Mm. So yeah, so that's like the dark, the darkness that lies in the back of that song. But then I also, I do think it's important to convey optimism. It is something that's important to me as a songwriter, as a person that makes music, that makes art. So I'd like to think that ultimately the story of Rudy is a positive one. Mm. Like the last lyric is, he only got lucky once, but that was enough. Yeah, and the uh, lightning struck, something like that. <laughs> That's what it is. I have it right here. As the thunderstruck. As the thunderstruck. Yeah. yeah. I like that line. I only got lucky once, but that was enough. We have not enough to, to get out. To leave. To be alive. Yeah, to get to be alive. And you don't feel like that's a little bit you? It must be. <laughs> I guess yeah, it must be. I imagine It's like a not yeah, it's like what they say about novelists say this. Like like none of the characters are me, but all of them are me. Mm. I was trying to process on the drive over the fact of who you are and, and what that means in terms of being a gay Iranian. Like that's and I was trying to figure out a way to relate to that, but I can't. And I guess I'm interested in what that's meant for you. Well, I think I'm protected by the fact that I live in America and that I'm American and I was born in America, just barely born in America. So in some ways, I I do have those rights, the right to exist. (laughs) But yeah, as a result, I identify as Iranian or Iranian-American. My parents, it's been their sort of mission statement since they left Iran to share the aspects about Persian culture and Iranian literature that people don't get in their daily lives a lot of the time because there's so much about Iran people don't know. And a lot of what they get is connected to religion. And I think what my parents have been trying to do is say, hold on, hold on a second, ignore that for a second. There's this whole other world that you don't know about. And so far as I connect to that identity, I have, it's complicated by the fact that I've never been to Iran, but I do speak Persian. But at the same time, I am illiterate. I cannot read or write. So I have this very complicated relationship with being Iranian. Is the complication not fully formed? No, I think I think it's as authentic as it can be. Uh, it's a very real part of who I am, but there are things that disconnect me from Iran. So that that's what makes it complicated. Things that I can't control. Mm. Politically. Yeah. Certainly. And do you spend time trying to unpack that? Yeah, I do. I think about going to Iran. I have cousins who are like oh you should come it'll be so great we will take care of you and I'm like well will I be safe and they're like oh come on yes of course you will so it's hard to know what's you know what's real like if I could go there I don't know I think about it you don't think you can I just don't know (laughs) I just don't know if I'd be safe there maybe I would maybe be safer there than I would be in America. 
I, just, I really just don't know. And mm-hmm. it's something I, that I think about because I would like to go. I think you'll have to, to try it. <laughs> that'll, that'll be the only way you'll know. Yeah. But it's still scary. Yeah. Is Judy still behind me? No. Oh, because you were looking over there and I was like, is that Judy? The expression of identity, which you've mentioned, is hard to articulate and hard to process. It's in a lot of the songs, I think. And one, I guess one song that I was kind of obsessively listening to was like the, uh, oh, I have this line here, the Don't Let It Get To You song. Mm -hmm. And the reason I keep listening to it is this line you have in there, and it's actually, I want you more when you don't make sense. And for context, maybe you can provide the context. I can try, but I... I think you should try. I'm really curious to see what... Well, I, to me, it's how I feel often romantically. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's good. I think that's good. The mission accomplished. I was, someone was asking me about that song recently, and I was telling them, I think that it's about... Like the first verse is about a situation that frustrates you. Then the second verse is kind of like about somebody that you love. <laughs> That's where I'm going to leave that. <laughs> I don't want to say too much. But I'm glad that you, I don't know, I'm glad that that, that l- lyric took you somewhere. So good I had to use it twice. <laughs> I don't know if this is, is this going to run before or after the album comes out? It's next week. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, awesome. What do you want? <laughs> well, no, no, it's it's cool because people will hear the "Don't Let It Get to You" reprise, mm. which is also really good. It seems this whole record, or at least there's a there's a two song thing that I find they're back to back, but "Warm Intruders" and "EOS" is that mm-hmm. and this line that I also wrote down. But I held you close, my cheek pressed up against yours. And I could feel the year after out in front of us both. And I could feel the year out in front of us both. That was the line I think you wrote to in reading it today and listening to it. That's the type of line where um, that's the one that makes us all worthwhile. Makes what worthwhile? This. Music. Yeah. Songwriting. That's interesting because I, I may have... Yeah, I mean, there may be different lyrics that I wrote out where I said I could feel the hereafter out in front of this us both. Did I write it? Did 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 you get lyrics somehow that said the year after? It says, and I could feel the year after out in front of us both. Good, because I changed it. Because actually I sung it as hereafter, and I was like, you know what? I think I like it more as year after. It's year. <laughs> what? <laughs> This is why some people don't write the lyrics down because it's better. It's better with. This is insane. That's but that's. I had this big emotional response, and now you're changing to here. That doesn't even make sense. I think there's something great about that. Awesome. It's it's year. There's something great about that. That's like the prism that you see the world through. Me. No, everything. We're we're all like. There's dirt on every lens, you know? Mm. We're, we think we're seeing something pure, but it's distorted. And that's good. And it's good to be okay with that. So you're saying I have to come to terms with the fact that the song that I was deeply moved by may now have different lyrics? It may have had different lyrics when I sang them, but I, I felt like I could get away with changing the lyric and how I wrote it. Mm. You've talked about optimism a whole bunch. And uh, I know we have to go. 
So I want to end on this. Okay. There's a line further down in that song. And you say, um, every one of us has felt the lights go down. I thought it said left. And I was like, no, I know it's felt. But now that you changed this here year thing <laughs> out of me, I'm convinced everything I'm reading may be wrong. Everyone is, that, that, that's a line. Is that where this album was born from? Feeling the lights go down. Yeah. That's so fascinating that you would say that because I named this album Half Light after the song Half Light. And at the time that I named the album, I didn't know exactly what that word meant. And I looked it up in a dictionary. And the, the dictionary definition is about, or not about, it, the dictionary definition of the word is referring to both sunset and sunrise. And I think one of the things that made me want to use that song title as the title of the album was that there is a very specific feeling to me as the sun is setting. It's like you're entering the night and it could be a little bit dangerous or sad or exciting. Hmm. And there's this well of emotions that I connect to sunset. And the same is true of sunrise. There's a feeling like the day is beginning and you can do so many things in a day. You can accomplish whatever you want in that day. And I wanted to try to convey that somehow. And I think I was subconsciously sort of working that out throughout so many of these songs. So many of these songs reference dawn or dusk or sunrise, sunset. And specifically that lyric, every one of us has felt the lights go down. It refers to a feeling that you get from a change in the world. Now? What do you mean? Well, it's kind of, kind of around that time. <laughs> yeah, it's that time. The, the sun is changing how we experience the day. It's changing what we feel. Now that the rec- I mean, I mean, now that the record's done, do you feel better? Or do you feel you've worked things out that you wanted to work out? I do, actually. I do. And I want to make another record. <laughs> That's also on my mind. That's already on my mind, which is crazy because this one hasn't come out yet. Yeah, but you're an obsessive, crazy person. So. <laughs> it's probably, it's true. Yeah. Okay. It's true. Well, that's good. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see a world where you stop making stuff. No way. It took a long time to make this record, but it would be great if I could have another one ready to go soon. 2020. <laughs> Sooner than that, I hope. You have to get less precious about it then. I know. I, I do want to make 15 song albums always in my career. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, do, I did have that thought that that would be kind of a cool thing to do, is to only make albums that were 15 songs. Here's the last actual thing. Okay. Now, that, now that I'm thinking about it, we're talking so much about like sun and, and sunset and sunshine and... and is that what music is for you now? Or has it always been that? Has it been the constant sun that's radiating? Or the thing that makes you happy? I definitely think it's connected. I definitely think that music and nature are connected to me in a deep way. And I'm trying to figure out how. And I, wanna, I want you to come somewhere with me. I want you to put headphones on 
or put my album on as you're taking a road trip and I want you to feel something like what it feels like at the crack of dawn. Like, why does it feel that way? What's on your mind? What are you thinking about? And if I could, yeah, if I could take you to that place, I feel like I've, I've done something important. Mm. Anything else on your mind? No, I think this has been a pretty good conversation. Yeah, your first podcast. <laughs> it's my first true podcast. Feel good? Yeah, I feel great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Rostam, um, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Special thanks this week to Judy Miller-Silverman for making today's episode possible. Rostam's new album, Half Light, drops next month on September 15th, but if you can't wait that long, he has premiered a handful of tracks from the record on YouTube. We'll include more info about that and Rostam's upcoming work at www.talkeasypod.com. As always, our executive producer is David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Music and sound by Dylan Peck. Associate producer is Valerie Attenhofer. And the show is produced by Nora Knight. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.